how much is not enough? This week on Download This Show, Facebook faces a plateau in users, but how much does it really matter to the company? On the upside, Facebook have also invented a very 2022 answer to a force field. Plus, why is a mining magnate taking them to court in two separate countries? In non-Facebook news, uh, Twitter want to make it easier to slide into your DMs. Is that a good thing? And we have news on a new cryptocurrency scam. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, founder and CEO at Eugene, Canal Calro. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you. Good to be back. And she is the social media strategist that's just a little bit sus on social media. Meg Coffee joining us. Welcome back. Hello. I, I, I have to wonder whether me introducing you as that, like, does good things or bad things for your business? But maybe I don't want to know the answer to that. <laughs> no, I look, I look at it, you know, I, I look at everything with a, with a grain of salt, a little bit of skepticism on everything we do. I think that's good, right? I think so too. And speaking of things that I'm somewhat skeptical about, the end of Facebook. Is Facebook facing oblivion? Uh, the social media giant has seen its daily active users drop for the first time in its 18-year history. Uh, Facebook's owner, which is, of course, Meta, uh, facing considerable questions at the moment, uh, not just from their users, but also from Wall Street as well. Meg, uh, what has exactly happened with Facebook here? People are waking up. No, I'm just kidding. Look, <laughs> Facebook is facing a, a reckoning. <laughs> For the first time ever, as you said, their daily active users has dropped. And that is a problem. When your business model is based off growth and you're no longer growing, that's a problem. Now you got to look at it two ways. Are they not growing because everyone that wants to be on Facebook is now officially on Facebook? Or are they not growing because people have problems with the company and are choosing to no longer use it? Yeah, right. It's got to be a bit of both. And I guess one of the things I would say about that is why is growth and Cornell, you run a startup, right? Why is mm. growth considered to be such an essential part of a tech company's success? So that's a really good question. And I guess like, I think it shouldn't, uh, especially in this context. So Facebook has 1.9 billion daily active users. That's like 25% of the world's population. So I think they're okay. I don't think this, it's really, this shouldn't be the conversation. <laughs> I think uh, and like I've got like a completely off target reckoning of us as a society that I think I'm more worried about than Facebook because <laughs> Facebook's really in no trouble at all. Zuckerberg's got 58% of the voting rights. So like uh, it's not like there's any recourse anyway. And if we look at daily active users on their other apps, including Instagram and WhatsApp, it's actually gone up. Uh, but really what's more troublesome to me uh, is that every crazy thing that Facebook has done over the past 10 years, uh, whether it's breaking democracy, whether it's impacting mental health, whether it's like the obvious drive to create more addictive products, has not precipitated a drop in stock price like their daily active users changing by 0.025%. I mean, so what does that tell you then? Because it's also worth pointing out, it wasn't just them. I mean, in the same kind of period where this happened, uh, other social media platforms, so Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, they all kind of fell sharply in that kind of window as well. So what does that tell you about the way, I guess, financial markets view tech companies, Canal? 
Well, I think financial markets are viewing tech companies within the microcosm of a singular metric that is not really what I would consider to be representative of like a more holistic measure. So in this case, for example, right, with Facebook, this 0.025% drop in daily active users erased 25% of the share price of Facebook during this period. That's like worth $240 billion for a 0.025% drop. And this kind of market response is exactly the type of pressure that companies get put under to create more and more addictive types of features uh, to get people back on the platform. So if Facebook now has to respond to this drop, they have to like put their engineers to work and be like, we need to increase daily active users. And this is how Facebook gets more addictive. This is how it's bad for your mental health. <laughs> this is how they create features that you know erode trust in democracy and news. And None of those realities that they've actually done this were, done this stuff in the past 10 years has actually caused a price drop like this. So I'm really troubled for society uh, and the way that our public markets react to uh, news like this because it actually puts the companies under more pressure to do more bad behavior, like to, uh, to essentially like go down this path of trying to create more addictive products, which is really not what they should be doing, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. The thing that weeds me most out about this is even though there was this huge reaction to like a very normal plateauing of their user base, they still made heaps of money. Like actually their, their, like their revenue of advertising sales kind of beat the market predictions for them. And it was still, and I love saying this number, 33.67 billion US dollars, like, which is an astonishing amount of money, Meg. It's not like that, that you know, Facebook is going to suddenly become not profitable, right? Yeah. I mean, when we're talking in billions, I mean, it's not like, you know, Zuckerberg is going to be struggling for coin at the moment. And, and the advertisers are still on the platform because small businesses are, they know that Facebook is how they can reach their audiences. You know, they're, they're reliant on Facebook and there really aren't at this day and age, any viable alternatives that, that small businesses can access. So they're sort of beholden to the platform. So it is this interesting, you know, tie between, yeah, sure, the users aren't on there, but as Kamal said, it's not that we're not necessarily using the the family of, of apps anymore. We're just not using Facebook, but we're back on, you know, WhatsApp or Instagram or the other one. So we haven't gone away. We're just diverting attention. Hmm. I mean, Kadara, one of the other components to Facebook now is that it isn't just the, the big blue. It's not just the Facebook uh, platform that we know that was always going to start to plateau out as it kind of reached that peak amount of people that could be on it. There are obviously other platforms. We know Instagram. Are, are those other platforms that are part of that broader meta universe? Sorry, I should say, just let me say one more time. Meta is the name of the parent company that owns Facebook. Uh, are they still growing or are they plateauing as well? Uh, no, they are still growing. So I think if you looked at Meta's daily active users across all of the family of apps, it's actually gone up. So this whole thing, this whole hullabaloo, this 25% drop in stock price, $240 billion, based on a single metric for one app in the family of apps. And I think it's just an outsized reaction that doesn't send a good message. Mm. Uh... Meg, are there other apps that Facebook should be looking at acquiring? We're going to talk a little bit about their, their meta universe later on in the show, but, but one of the big ways in which, you know, Facebook kind of built its growth was sort of acquiring different other companies. Are, are there things that would be, that they should look at, at picking up, Meg? 
I mean, I think they're definitely always on the lookout for, for anything that's going to be a competitor that they could acquire. But they've also got to be very careful at the moment because they're getting faced with a lot of antitrust um, issues. You know, they recently acquired Giphy, and the UK is is questioning whether that was okay. Are they becoming too big? Have they acquired too many things? I think we will look at them, um, focus more on things that will help them in the metaverse as opposed to necessarily um, apps that can help them growth hack at this stage. But that's my mm. opinion. What do you think, Canal? Yeah, I kind of second that. I think that they are trying to desperately to get out of the iOS and Google um, kind of ecosystems because you can see how a simple shift uh, in terms of privacy for Apple has erased, you know, I think about $10 billion worth in revenue from that for them because now they can't track people across all these platforms. So with Meta, they get to own the whole thing from start to finish and it does seem to make more sense as a long-term bet. As in uh, their, their future augmented reality, sort of virtual reality world, they're, they're dubbing Meta, you mean? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their virtual reality world where they own Oculus, they own the software, they own the hardware and the software component, which kind of gives them like free reign to do whatever. Whereas in, uh, in terms of Facebook, Instagram, they're still quite reliant on, you know, uh, face, uh, sorry, Apple and Google's platforms, uh, whether it's iOS, Android, and so on and so forth. So this gives them a lot more independence to operate in whatever horrifying way they want to operate. <laughs> It's actually interesting. I hadn't really connected those two ideas before. So just um, if, just for context, Apple has made a significant change to their privacy settings, which would stop, you know, third-party services like your Facebook's um, following your online behaviour outside of the app. And as a result of that, there's been a pretty significant impact on Apple uh, I guess the the way they can monetize you as as a user, Meg, and I'd never actually kind of connected the idea that that might be one of the reasons why they're so keen to move you into an entirely new ecosystem like this virtual reality thing, the metaverse. I'd never kind of drawn those dots before, Meg. Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. It, 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 as Kamal said, they you know they own the entire metaverse. They own every bit of it, and and so they can control it. We say that Facebook is all about growth, right? But they're all about data and, and the data that they can sell off of us. And so with Apple and Google and you know the the GDPR and the restrictions in California, all these new restrictions coming in, the amount of data that they can get out of us is is becoming harder and harder. So if they can create a universe where they control every single aspect of what we do, then all of a sudden we become a lot more valuable to them than just a, a regular Facebook user for that matter. Now, staying in their, their metaverse, this sort of augmented reality universe that they've been sort of touting for a couple of months now where you can move around like a sort of cartoon-esque avatar with an emoji-like head uh, and access via virtual reality. They're encountering some interesting issues in their uh, canal where they're realizing that they actually need to kind of manage people's personal space in this virtual world. Walk me through exactly what it is that's transpired. Well, turns out real life plays out, <laughs> virtual reality plays out similar to, the, uh, to real life, except like there's even more freedom. And so this is essentially just creating... It's the age-old problem of harassment, right? I think that uh, people are having these creepy experiences where uh, people are invading people's space in a virtual context uh, and, uh, like, you know, acting badly and or also with, like, audio, it's super weird. So if you, like, kind of rock up to someone really close and you say something, uh, the person can really hear it, like you're right next to them, and that's super creepy. Wait, hold on. So, like, 
if you how, sorry i'm just still wrapping my head around this thing so so somebody can come up to you in the virtual reality world and then just creepily talk in your ear like like they they, they do it like that that's right and you hear it cuz like you've got and it's just like an all kind of encompass em, encompassing experience so it really feels like they're right next to you it's super eerie and creepy so they've actually tried to to manage people's personal boundaries meg what what does that actually mean to to manage people's personal boundaries in a virtual reality environment what are they changing okay so i love this and i need this in my real life <laughs> right away please um so so personal boundary is basically a setting um the easiest way to explain it is you just put the setting on and then a wall comes up and no one can come through your wall and everyone leaves you alone um the technical version is yeah you set your boundary and then as people approach they're just not allowed to to come near you so they can't come into your um your your metaverse that you've created your land that you've created and so it does it protects you you know i wish i could build a wall around me all the time and say stay away oh my god it's a force field they built a force field it's literally yeah. a force field i oh think it's brilliant god. you know yeah <laughs> Because you don't, you know, I think, and when you, when you tie in the creepiness of like people sliding on up to you and whispering, like you do want to control that this, this area that you're in, this metaverse is meant to be fun. You're doing this because it's meant to be a form of entertainment. Like you don't want the creeps in there bugging you out as well. All right. Fair play to Facebook slash meta. That is actually a very good thing. <laughs> it's a very, that's a very good feature. I think. Yeah. 100% See, I do give that. Facebook credit. I do like them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, just staying in Facebook, I swear we will talk about things that are not Facebook in a second. Uh, interesting story out of Australia. The Australian billionaire, uh, Andrew Forrest, also known as Twiggy Forrest, has launched a criminal case against Facebook, alleging the company failed to prevent scam ads using his image. Canal, what are the ads using his image in the first place? Yeah, there are kind of these scam ads where it'll say, oh, Andrew or Twiggy invested in this cryptocurrency and they're uh, what they call programmatic ads, which are essentially ads that target individual users, often according to their geolocation. So what they're using is well-known celebrities like Twiggy in a region that you live in that are claiming that this person has made a big investment in this thing and you can also get rich with uh, like Twiggy if you also invest. And so if you click on it, uh, the, the ad, there's kind of a fake news story to back all of that up. And then if you enter your details and register for the scheme, they'll call you and ask you to invest a small amount. And then if you do invest, they ask you to inc invest increasingly large amounts. And it's, of course, all scams. Right. So I've, I've, it's interesting. I've seen these ads usually using like Walid Ali and people from the, they love using faces of people from the project for one reason or another. Um, mm. But the thing that confuses me about this is that these ads when you see them, they're everywhere. Like they're all over the internet. They're not specifically on Facebook. So Meg, why is Forrest making an issue of this with Facebook? Because Facebook's not doing anything about it, to be honest, you know, and it's not just him. It's, it's, it's as you said, it's all of the celebrities and it's not just the crypto, it's the face creams and the investment properties, it's everything. And, and he's had enough. And he said, look, you guys are the ones that run the ad platform. You guys are the ones that ultimately are allowing this content to get through and you're not doing it, anything about it. You're not vetting it. You're not checking it. We report it. You say that you're doing something about it and here we are you're still not doing anything so you know what i'm going to sue you and i'm going to sue you in australian court but i'm also going to sue you in the u.s court because i'm serious about you stopping this do you think that will register as serious to facebook slash meta canal uh no probably not to be honest uh so um 
Uh, Mark, one thing I was going to say is that you know you probably see the Wally Dolly ads because they're specifically targeting you to see mm. a Wally Dolly they, ad. Because I know I'm a Wally Dolly stan. It's true, I am. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say it's the color of our skin. Um, <laughs> probably, probably that. Uh, <laughs> sucks. Uh, <laughs> um, it's yeah. So, so to be honest, I think that. I don't think this is going to work because I actually think that it's really, really hard for Facebook to deal with this kind of stuff. And so I think what will come out in, you know, in any kind of court case is that this isn't something that's really, really easy to tackle. And it's not just Facebook, but like international authorities, whether it's in Australian authorities, UK, US, they're all trying to target these scams, but they're very, very complex to actually take down. It's a game of cat and mouse. So most of these uh, organizations that are running these ads are running overseas. So they're outside of you know, Australian uh, jurisdiction. Now, the scammers, they change text and photos really, really frequently. They also buy hundreds of domains every month and use a variety of them to evade having their domains blocked or banned by Facebook, Google, et cetera. And here's the craziest part. If you are outside of their targeted geolocation, the same website looks like a website about cooking or gardening or something else innocuous. So it's so specific. Like if you're not in that particular geolocation, even if authorities are trying to like find these domains, it's going to look completely different to them than it would if you're in that particular location. That's so oh. hard. It is very, very difficult to take this stuff down. Now I just want to see a cooking and gardening ad also with Walida Lee, though. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Our guest this week, Kunal Kalro, the founder and CEO at Eugene. And Meg Coffey is a social media strategist. Mark Fennell is my name. And Twitter is exploring a new way to send uh, DMs or direct messages on iOS devices, so your iPhones and iPads. Uh, it involves letting users... Slide into your inbox through a link on your tweets, bypassing the DM button on your profile, and it has got some people quite upset, Meg, but why? Well, when I first saw this, I got actually really excited because sometimes I like to share tweets or I like to reply to people, but I'm not someone that regularly, luckily, gets harassed on Twitter. I mean, I say stupid things and people come for me, but it's pretty calm. However, a lot of other people do get harassed. And this new ability to DM someone straight from the timeline makes it just that much easier to harass them because you're taking the step out of having, you know, it's extra clicks. They have to click through to the profile, then hit the DM button to send you the horrible message. Now they can just send you the horrible message straight from the timeline line, which rightfully so has a lot of people up in arms. Do you think Canal it will have that much impact on the ease at which people can be trolled? You don't have to leave your timeline anymore. So I, I, I do agree. I think that it's going to make harassment a little bit easier, which isn't to say that people who wanted to harass were committed enough to go to someone's profile and like click DM and so on and so forth. But this is just that extra step easier, just like one step less. You don't even have to think about it anymore. You click the button, you spout your whatever disgusting thought you have, you put it out there. And Twitter's already got a bad reputation for having far too much uncivil discourse. And that's a really nice way of saying that it can be a bit of a cesspool. So why take this one step further and make it a little bit easier? I don't get it. Mm. It's worth pointing out that this little DM button idea that they're talking about is is in testing phase. It's not being rolled out. Are there things they could do to tweak it that you think, Meg, might make it safer or is it sort of built into the DNA, the idea? 
They could just give us an edit button and stop all the other talk and we'd all be happy, right? This is a consistent thing with Twitter, right? For many years, people have been asking for a button to, to edit their tweets. Every other platform lets you do it. Why has there been such resistance, Canal, to this idea on Twitter? I think there's like some form of purist behavior of, you know, once you put something out there, you just have to have it out there. And it was the whole vibe of Twitter when it first started was around this, you know, short discourse type platform where you just like put it out there and it's out there. And I think that's kind of part of their ethos. So I feel like it's a it's not something, I don't see them changing it anytime soon. They're never going to change it. We're never, ever getting an edit button. Like, we can dream, but it's never happening. <laughs> Are there other functions, Meg, that you would like Twitter to explore? Things that would make your Twitter experience better? Um, look, I, I mean, like I said, I don't have a problem with this new DM feature, but I don't get harassed. I like it because I do like sharing tweets and, and, and talking to people, sometimes privately. Um, you know, I there's little features here and there, but I, I like Twitter. For me, I like it as it is. I have a, I have a good time. I'm all about the mutant block on Twitter, so I don't have a bad time on there. I You know, I, I like it how it is. I guess I'm on the other side of the camp where I'm like, I'm not really sure how anyone can recover Twitter, so maybe they should take a, pay, <laughs> face, uh, a page out of Facebook's book and start something new and take your learnings of how not to do stuff and truly embody them on this new platform before it grows out of your control. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always seem like the healthiest place, but I, I do sort of take both of your points. There is a there is a gross toxicity to, to many aspects of Twitter, but also I, I like you, Meg, as a person that has received various forms of sort of trolling over the years, the block and the mutant block does deal with a lot of it, doesn't deal with all of it, but it's interesting that I think the way I relate to Twitter now has changed so much over the last couple of years where it's like, I spend a lot of time just watching, like watching other conversations play out and then saying and doing absolutely nothing. Does that kind of approach to Twitter make sense to you, Meg? Oh yeah, totally. Because it's so easy to be canceled. You know, you, you say one thing wrong and, and people just blow it out of proportion. You know, I, um, I made fun of the, uh, the COVID rules here in Perth and that we needed a wall between North and South. And you'd thought I'd started world war three. People went nuts. <laughs> um, you know, so you do the most innocuous things can really set people off. But I think if you are going to be out there on Twitter and saying things, you got to have thick skin because you never know what what's going to set people off. I also just think the limited character number means like it's very hard to say anything nuanced in 280 characters, which means the moment you put something out on Twitter, you then also kind of need to clear some time afterwards to deal with the clarifications that come afterwards, Canal. Yeah, I'm, I, that's exactly why I've become more like your, uh, you as a Twitter user. I get on there, I look at, I read conversations that other people are having, but I rarely post stuff because, I mean, unless you're doing like this kind of five thread long tweet where it's really just like one long story and you dive into the whole uh, detail, it's just like really hard to communicate anything of true value in that many characters. Uh, and finally here on the show, a crypto scam alert. I feel like that needs like an alarm sound effect or something. Uh, authorities, the Australian tax office have put out an urgent alert for Australians with money invested in certain forms of cryptocurrency, warning of a text message scam doing the rounds canal. What's happening? Right. Okay. So here's what happens, right? You get a text message saying that you've been suspected of t cryptocurrency tax evasion with a link that looks a bit like an ATL link. 
And then they'll ask people to connect their wallet. And of course, if you did so, they'll then have access to your wallet. So that's kind of where you lose all your cryptocurrency. The one thing I guess I wanted to point out here is that as a PSA almost, never click these links. It is not the way the ATO will ever contact you should you ever be under such suspicion in the first place. Don't click the links, guys. Don't click the links. <laughs> if you're a person who's, uh, let's say, technically literate enough to have cryptocurrency, are you then also gullible enough to click on this link? Meg, uh, where's in that Venn diagram, do you think there's a lot of space in, in the middle zone? I think, I mean, yes, because the scammers are getting better and better and, and the text messages that are coming through are getting better and better. You know, if you're someone that does a lot of online shopping, you might be inclined to click on the link that says your package is due, check the tracking here or something like that. If it's if it's the right type of text message that fits into your shopper profile, your, your, your persona, then I think, yeah, that even the, the smartest ones of us can sometimes get scanned. Um, that's why you don't ever click the link. If you get a text message, don't click the link. I think that, you know, the other thing to note is that cryptocurrency is now kind of entering the mainstream vernacular. Last time I went home, my mom asked me how to invest in crypto and I was like, no, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, is, that, can and, I, is that a no for everybody or just a no for your mom? Oh, uh, no, specifically no for my mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just absolutely no. And, you know, some things, that, no, no, just no. So, yeah, I feel like <laughs> cryptocurrency is now entering the mainstream vernacular enough that it is becoming a larger problem. And, and it's, not just, it's not just, you know, like the tech bros anymore. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true. Meg, do you think the rise of cryptocurrency becoming more of a popular uh, pastime and investment, do you think that is going to change the shape of how many people get scammed? Well, I think definitely. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of talk at the moment about all the celebrities that are getting involved with crypto and NFTs and all of that. And I saw a really poignant statement the other day that says, you know, all of this stuff sort of relies on other people buying in. And when other people stop buying in, it stops growing and stops working. And we have a name for things like that. And, you know, Ponzi schemes in the past have not historically always worked out well. From the outside, it can be quite hard to assess risk. And what is a what is a risky investment, investing in that particular platform or that particular currency, and, and what isn't? I, I think that's still something that's really complicated for people to navigate. That's, I think you've given the broader explanation of why I just said no to my mom, right? Like, <laughs> I think that it's... <laughs> Uh, that was a my my response was a one word summary of that exact <laughs> explanation. Uh, I think that basically, like what you were saying earlier around uh, the pandemic, bringing uh, a whole new class of online shoppers that are a bit novice to online shopping, in combination with this growing interest in the space and generally the growing interest in investing money over the past two years as well as public markets have heated uh, have like heated up. Everyone's looking for that next opportunity and a lot of people don't necessarily have that discernment around what opportunities are truly viable and also have large amounts of investment money lying around as a result of you know being retired and so on and so forth so it's like it is uh it's a bit of a, a storm waiting to happen here where all of the elements are kind of coming together. People are coming online more. People have money to spend. And this the rise of cryptocurrency in mainstream conversation is creating like this perfect storm. 
And no doubt it's only going to increase over the next couple of months as more of the currencies proliferate. That is all we've got time for this week on the show. Huge thank you to our guest this week. Kunal Kalro is the founder and CEO. Eugene, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Super fun as always. Noted for cryptocurrencies. <laughs> uh, Meg Coffey, social media strategist who continues to be a bit sus on social media. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Always fun to chat with you guys. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.